On the other end of this conversation is David Osmond up in Whitby Island. Happy birthday, David. Well, my goodness, of course, was I there on opening day, I wonder, in July of 1966, right? I don't remember that you were, Dave. I think you were working for ABC. I think you'd already kind of gone off to try and sell out. It was, but, it's, uh, that, that's true. Uh, 66 was my, my one year of television. That's, yeah, that's well, there you Television executive Dave Osman, former program director of KPFK, where Oz was born. For those of you who don't know, KPFK was and is the Pacifica station in Los Angeles. And uh, Oz started there on July 24th, 1966. Woo, David. Times have certainly changed, haven't they? Well, 1966. <laughs> I've got. Um, uh, I, I went through my, you know, you, you go online and do this, but you couldn't hold in your hands the Time magazine 70 years in review, 1923 to 1993, and open it up. This is, this is a big picture, bigger than the screen I'm looking at. I want you to know, 1966, here's what Time caps here. Uh, De Gaulle requested the removal of NATO forces from French soil. The new uh-huh. Metropolitan Opera House opened at New York's Lincoln Center. Uh-huh. Lucy Baines Johnson married Patrick Nugent. Okay. What? And Truman Capote planned a black and white party at the Plaza Hotel in New York. That was their big story here. That's that their was display it? story is Truman Capote's black and white party. He's kissing uh, 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 Lauren Bacall. So there you are. Well, that, that, you know, 66 was the crisis point in the topography of history because you've got the old school Time magazine loose, that whole, you know, power, the power elite of the past, and you have looming on it the, the hippie revolution, the social and, social and cultural revolution, and there at the, at the, at the tipping point is... Truman Capote's black and white party in New York, like anybody reads a damn, you know, you, you know, got to give me a break here. Well, let's, let's tell them what else was going on in 1966, Dave. Well, for, well, that, first, for that, Pete, you got to go to Life magazine, <laughs> yeah, which oh. shows you a big color picture of wounded, a wounded soldier being dragged off the uh, uh, field in Vietnam. Well, that's more like it. You can think the time could have figured out that things were really hot no, in Vietnam. No, life, because it published those big pictures. So, And the quote here is, in Vietnam, escalation was the word. At home, black power and a new meaning for trip. See? Life was into it, man. Life got it. Yes. Sounds like something we, we would have written, and so we started to do in that year. That's uh, right. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, no. I just uh, it's there was a lot to write about. Uh, Lyndon uh, Johnson was running for president, mm-hmm. and Ronald Reagan uh, won that year and became a national figure by winning the California governorship in '66. It launched him. 
So we we were we were in in all of that ferment too. There was a lot going on just politically in LA. A- absolutely, Dave. I had come back to I'd come to Los Angeles itself in June via San Francisco, San Francisco via Cleveland, Cleveland via New York, and New York via Europe. So I left Europe at the very end of 1965, being in that. Uh, uh, colloquium of, of, of writers and, and, and uh, movie makers and avant-garde sound people in Germany and came to New York where indeed there was a lot happening, man. I mean, it was the Fugs and it was the Velvet Underground and Andy Warhol. and There was a lot going on. I was not invited, by the way, I have to tell you. I was not invited to the Truman Capote Black <laughs> You didn't go to that. <laughs> no, no. And, and I wasn't tripping either. I, I'd taken my acid in um, Berlin when it was legal, when we used to get it from Sandoz in little legal bottles and nobody knew what it was. I, and, you know, I told you that story about my first small trip going down to see, <laughs> to meet <clears throat> Kenneth Anger and see his marvelously, uh, you know, er- homoerotic films in the CIA secret <laughs> viewing room on 25 micrograms of Sandoz. And I went, this is it. I don't like this stuff. I'm not even sure I like Kenneth Anger. <laughs> so, so I went from there. Oh my God! So then I ended up in New York, in New York, right? And all that stuff going on. I'd already been with a living theater, not a member, but close to them. And via go via Cleveland to help my dad open his men's store, and on off to San Francisco, which was supposed to be, you know, it was hippie haven. Okay, hey, welcome to San Francisco. I thought I was going out there to sleep with an old girlfriend. Turns out I arrive at her apartment. And she's hooked up with Neil Cassidy. So <laughs> I don't have no chance against Neil Cassidy. I guess he's he's pretty famous, man. So they were all very sweet to me, and they gave me this apartment on Polk Street. And I look out one morning, and there's Timothy Leary and Allen Ginsberg walking into this acid symposium. I don't think it was called that, but that's what it was. You could see just through the door all of these, you know, crazy squiggly, uh, squishy things uh, being projected up on screens. Remember those days? <laughs> oh, yeah. And I looked, I watched those people go through and I said, man, this is so juvenile. Those people are so completely not getting it. I know this is what, what hit me. So then, uh, and, and it was an interesting time. I mean, you know, Janis Joplin on the streets and, the and you know, the Grace Slick and, and all those people were the diggers and, and the Grateful Dead. It was a small community. Everybody was there, you know. But uh, I got I went over to the Oracle. Remember the Oracle, that magazine, the first great so-called West Coast hippie magazine? Oh, Pete, I was the poetry editor of the Los Angeles Southern California Oracle. Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. Was, it, Talk about squiggly lines. Oh, yeah. yeah, the Oracle, the, the Southern California Oracle, which was, you know, a, a clone of the, of the San Francisco Oracle. Uh, it, it was uh, uh, done out of a little place on Fairfax Avenue before they widened it and obliterated all the old uh, landmarks. And, uh, and everybody was just out of their minds all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And it took forever for an issue to come out, but that's where um, Hopi Set 
my poem Hopi Set was originally published in uh, in the Southern California Oracle. Oh yeah, we touched all of this in our separate lives in in uh, in the earlier in the early part of the '60s. We touched all of these same people one way or another. Yeah, I mean, when I, I went over to the Oracle and I said, "Hey, man, I mean, you you've actually worked on a newspaper. How would you like to be our editor?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, said, right. Because yeah, well, all we can do, all we can do is make squiggly lines. <laughs> lines. Well, let me see your front page of this day, this issue. And there was this picture of this American Indian done with all these psychedelic colors. Mm. And I turned to him. I said, "That's not an American Indian." <laughs> and I left. I knew I would be jinxed if I was going to go promote that image, man. Oh God. Well, it's funny because you then imported that image to from San Francisco to Southern California a year later. Uh, Not even it, a year later, man. No, no, just a couple of months later. This was June. I started Oz in that 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 July. No, but I mean, when you did the Indian Symposium, the Indian Colloquium, uh, that yeah, was the first. That was the first time I saw anybody dressed entirely, a couple dressed entirely in buckskins. Well, there you go. Yeah, that was they, the real Native American, right? Th- yeah. That was the real Native American look, right. Well, you know, it, but it wasn't psychedelic. I knew that the Indians weren't psychedelic, and I don't even know if I'd started to read Castaneda yet. That was close. I don't remember when he came out. It was close to the inception of Oz. But uh, I'll tell you, in those days when we started, because Dave came on real quickly, you, you floated back into KPFK. I was there. Phil Austin was engineering the show remember he was in the booth oh yeah 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 well i i as a listener i remember having to turn off into a parking lot on sunset boulevard uh and just sit in the car and listen to whatever whatever weirdness was going on surprise Uh, right yeah oh my my earliest picture of you in a professional sense uh, as a listener was uh your ability to be Whoever it was who had written whatever it was you were reading, it didn't matter whether it was the book of Job or Truman Capote, you were that guy, you know. And it was extremely convincing and very unusual, uh, 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 full of a great deal of self-confidence. And and interesting, you know, you'd come from Europe, and so there was this avant-garde, European avant-garde thing that was sort of the next generation of that. You know, uh-huh, the, right. the the uh, the children of the of the you know, looking back at the days of the surrealists and thinking, how could I be so c- cool? Like that was cool. You know? yeah, it was post beat, also remember, but it was European because you're the Europeans were not beats. They were they were surrealists right. and they were whatever. Right. But yeah, and and so you heard I was doing that, man. And uh, I'll tell you when I started on KPFK. You remember what FM was like? I mean, you look at FM today and it's just, it's an abomination. It's all the same tune being played over and over again. Back then, it was so insanely square, right? I mean, there was art. You, you, you did art, but otherwise it was just like, huh? All dead Germans being played. It was all very, very classical and cool. I imagine that they probably even looked askance at, at your poetry at that time because you weren't doing stuffy stuff, man. You know, you were you were doing rare stuff. So I, I don't know. Um, anyway, when I got on there, there was nothing on at night, and Oz just exploded. Remember how big it got so quickly? Well, yeah. By the time, now, I've, uh, somewhere 
there'll be a picture display of all of this stuff because uh, I've sent it off. You have copies of it, and uh, yes. I sent it off to uh, Phil Fountain. But uh, about nine months later, there was a second marathon. You showed up just in time to uh, be at the first fundraiser for this radio station right. in 66. Yes. Well, in, in April of 67, the yep. second one, uh, yep. Radio Free Oz was at its peak. Yep. It was yep. just before uh, Love it. you uh, you left KPFK yeah. and moved on to uh, KRLA. Yep, yep. So, so at we were K- given everything. Yeah, uh, well, I was going to say at KPFK, that's as, as long as the show lasted. But then again, you were doing three or four hours a night, so. Well, five nights a week. Yeah. Right. A lot of really interesting and weird people came through Radio Free Oz, just to give folks there an idea of what it was like to sit in KPFK and have Frank Zappa come through, the Buffalo Springfield come through, uh, Timoth- not Timothy Leary, but a couple of people who had come up from Timothy Leary's art camp in Mexico whose eyes were pinwheels. But the worst of all, man, because all of that stuff was fine. I mean, Fr- Frank Zappa was a bit of an asshole, but he was just he was just nervous. That's all. Uh, but it was Andy Warhol day. That oh, you mean you Mr. Know, Campbell Soup Can himself? Himself. He, the he, guy whose he paintings are selling for billions of dollars? In yeah, your so studio. Thought, oh, wow. oh, yeah. Yeah, whoa, Andy Warhol. I look over, and there he is on the other side of the glass waiting to come in. And for the first time, in, and probably the last time in my life, I, I was faced with a vampire. There's no doubt about this fact. This man was an emotional vampire. His, his skin was the color of the underbelly of a fish. He comes in for the interview and won't speak. He brings in Ultraviolet and some other lady with him, and they speak for him when they weren't drinking vodka straight from a quart bottle. Uh, at the end of the show, I was so emotionally drained. There's a picture of me with my head on the shoulder of, of, of Brooke Anderson, my, my girlfriend of the time. Uh, I think we're at Denny's afterwards, and I was completely drained. So, And, you know, so think about what a, what a fascinating and available time that was. There was, there was no other, uh, you know, gold standard. You created it all yourself. I'd heard Bob Fass in New York doing a show, but Radio Free Oz was the first truly wide-scale go get him alternative radio show in America. I, I think I, that's fair to say. I think it is. It absolutely is. And, it, and when it jumped to um, KRLA and had 100,000 watts of effective radiated power, as we used to say in those days, uh, at, yeah. at the station sign-off. Can you imagine signing off a station? Uh, yeah. When it moved there, we had people, uh, uh, you had people, we had people driving up from uh, San Diego to come in and come to the San Fernando Valley to see this show. Well, yes. it, it, let's, let, let's, let's take a little break after Andy Warhol. I have to think about that. But oh. from this Life magazine, um, of course, there are lists of all kinds of things. Here are the fads of 1966. Uh, um, mini skirts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Paper jewelry. Oh, I, I, I remember paper jewelry. Yeah, paper yeah. jewelry yeah. and paper dresses. Uh, transparent uh-huh. vinyl dresses. This is all very fashion conscious here. I, Do you remember getting, those? I saw a couple of people in those. Only a couple. I mean, L.A. was not a, a, a New York fashion center by any means. 
Uh, LSD, of course. We've talked about that. Batman was a fad of the year because Batman, yes, I was at ABC and Batman was their big show. I went to the opening night party for Batman at 20th Century Fox. Biff Bang Pow, yeah, absolutely. Adam Adam West, wasn't that his name? He's about four feet tall. Yes. Uh, Topless waitresses. That's right. Yep, That's yeah. Right. I remember the first time walking into a favorite restaurant in the Valley for lunch, working at KPFK, and, and everybody, all the waitresses were topless. It was extraordinary. It was really yes. weird, I got to say. Uh, uh, pantsuits. Hey, and they're still wearing them. Well, the Secretary of State has been wearing them since she was a child. <laughs> That's right, in, in the cradle. And yes. finally, uh, granny eyeglasses. Oh, yes. Worn by men, too. Men yeah. Well, them. where do you think that, that fad started? Don't you think that was uh, – was Lennon not wearing granny eyeglasses, even even the even rimless glasses at that time? I think so. But you know who also might have been the first? Roger McGuinn was uh, the first uh, I ever saw wearing granny glasses. Now, he might have gotten them from John Lennon. But you see, when the fire sign started recording, folks, in 1967 – in uh, in the studios there in Columbia, we would share the studios with the likes of the birds and Moby Grape, etc. And we'd sit there on the other side of the glass and watch the birds do Renaissance Fair. And there was McGuinn in these tinted granny glasses. I can't forget those. Yep, that's so. right. Well, oh, gee, 1966. That's uh, we'll have to bring it up to date after after a little break. Okay. With you, feed or cheat or mistreat you, simplify you, classify you, deny, defy, or crucify you. All I really want to do is baby be friends with you. No, I ain't looking to fight with you. Frighten you or upheaven you Drag you down or bring you down Chain you down or bring you down All I really want to do Is maybe be friends with you Like me, or be like me. I don't want to meet you again, make you spin, or do you in, or select you, or dissect you, or inspect you, or reject you. All I really wanna do. So Andy Warhol, the vampire, visited the studio, but there were two things that 
actually three things that come to mind about that period. One, of course, is the formation of the Firesign Theater. I mean, there was there were these guys. Uh, Phil Austin was so funny. He started engineering the show and producing the show, too. And then we'd start to play with each other on the radio. And he's so funny. I'd never really heard anybody like that, you know. And, and at Yale, I'd been with some pretty funny people. But he was something. And then Dave Osmond comes by, and, and he's just full of all sorts of fascinating stuff. He knew about the Indians, and he knew about Los Angeles and poetry, and he'd done the, the beat poets, and he, was, he brought that, like, the, the smell of New York with him. And then Phil Proctor, whom I'd been with at Yale, who was like the lead in two of my musicals, shows up. And I'm doing funny things with him. And all of a sudden, I look around at these three guys. And I remember, maybe subconsciously, that time in London in 1965 when I was working there. I was working with Peter Cook doing uh, some articles for uh, Private Eye. And I walked down Oxford Circle and I looked up and there was a huge billboard of the Beatles. This was Beatles 65. And it said, showed the four of them in those little, like, the, the, the Nehru kind of black. You know, the mod thing. Mm-hmm. And under the, it said, yeah, 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 something like that. <laughs> and I looked up at that billboard and said out loud, I'm going to have a four man group someday, but we won't dress alike. And all of us, that's right. <laughs> and then I, then I said that that's God's truth. And then I forgot all about it. And then all of a sudden, here are these guys, and I and I was a, by then a graduate astrologer of Ivy Goldstein Jacobson's orary school of of uh, astrology. I blush to say, and uh, I found out that the three of you were all fire signs, and so was I. So of course, I immediately came up with the fire sign theater, and on Oz on what, November seventeenth, nineteen. 19- 66. So our 45th is coming up real fast, Dave. Yes. Uh, we did the Oz Film Festival jury. I was going to have a, a, an Oz Film Festival in December. It, it itself never materialized, but the Oz Film Festival jury, which was the other three guys with me moderating, turned out one of the funniest times I have ever had on radio. And it was particularly funny because I didn't expect it. It was completely fresh. I'd never really been in the presence of the Fire Sign Theater. We, we were created as an art form that night. We expressed ourselves. I was totally flabbergasted. All right, there was that. It was Absolutely. a happening. It was, but it was a really smart happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. That's it. It was, it was, we found, we both had the, the, the theatricality of it and also the completely loose happening quality of it. You know, everybody was pretty much a pro at what they were doing. By by November, yes. you'd been doing this show for hundreds of hours. Yes. Uh, Austin was a Shakespearean, young Shakespearean actor in, in L.A. I've been doing radio for six, seven years. I knew yes. all about that. And, uh, uh, and Proctor was, was invincible. Proctor, yes, and he's, Proctor he's been in theater since he was a kid. Yeah, and could speak in you know, in any dialect you wanted to bring up. Uh, I had Mexican and and uh, Raul, Peter Raul Sellers. <laughs> I had Raul Peter Raul. Sellers pretty much at my command. That was it. So I'll, I'll tell you how naive the, the radio audience was at that time. Not to say that they aren't equally naive today, but I won't speak for them. Austin played one of his two characters was a pornographic filmmaker from London. Okay. And I said, really? He said, uh, and he said he'd like to play one of his 
movies for us over the radio. I said, well, that's fine. So we start the sound of a 16 millimeter projector going. And I go, oh, well, this is very interesting. It's a dentist's office. Oh, the dentist is wearing a, a, a wolf's mask. That, that's kind of interesting. And this blonde girl is coming in to be the patient. And now he's taking, wait, wait a minute, he's taking off. No, 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 no. You can't show this on the radio. Stop it right now. So we stop the sound of the Remember the angry calls we got? You can't. You can't stop that movie. He has the right to show anything he wants to on the radio. Oh, God, it blew my mind. Yeah, it was, a, it was a dedicated uh, uh, audience of, um, of right to speak your mind folks who listened to that show. And they really bought it. They really bought that it was somehow real, which is what radio does. You, you, you buy that films are real, even though you know they're perfectly well they're not. You buy that they're real. Your brain puts it together. And radio does that in this miraculous way that allows you to play, play with it. And radio had been very constricted. It, it, perhaps KPFK was the loosest, but it was still um, operating in the 19th century. You know, it still wasn't as happening as it became. I, I tried to push things along by having live shows every night. Uh, yes. For a long while, and uh, had some wonderful people in to to do a comedy. But the thing that really hit was uh, was Radio Free Oz, and then to be a part of it uh, when November rolled along. Well, we we latched on to the Wizard after that, and the Wizard latched on to us because we were having so much fun. Oh my! And we continue to have so much fun. Now there was we were we were an avant garde group, and I was approached by a couple of guys who called themselves the Provos. Now, I'd been in Amsterdam in 64, 65 for a while, and Provos was started in Amsterdam, that term. Uh, yeah, Robbie Jaspers was the guy that started it, and so I was familiar with them. And they were the American Provos, uh, uh, Joe Agnello uh, and the other guy who started this group called United States of America, which is kind of a popular rock group for a while. They said, we'd like to take over the station. So what do I say? Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. So they come in that night, pretend to tie me up, and then they play the Star Spangled Banner continuously, saying that they have taken over the station. An hour and a half later, the police broke down the door. Because, <laughs> and I was suspended for two weeks. They couldn't fire me because I was just doing too well. And I thought that that was a little, I thought that was a little extreme. But, you know, that's really the length to which we took radio. Today, the only way we can take radio to those lengths basically is on the web, wouldn't you say? Yes. And even so, um, you know, pulling a stunt, what that was was effectively the same kind of stunt as the War of the Worlds. And after yeah. the original War of the Worlds in 1938, the FCC came down on any sort of exploitation of reality um, on the radio that would scare people. So you had yes. to put your station breaks in and had to identify everything. This is a fictional program. Yes, and, not to scare you. Yeah, not to scare you. And actually, among the many... Um, barriers that I, we were directly a part of breaking down in the in the middle 60s there uh, was that con that convention by then a convention of not uh, uh, tricking the audience 
You always told the audience, except in drama where you were presenting a scene, but I mean in uh, live radio, his highest is Bill, and this is Jim, and let's do some funny voices, and here's the traffic man, you know, the weather downtown. It was all like that. And, and suddenly here in the middle of the night, there was a movie festival, and people were showing their movies on the radio. And wait a yeah. minute. Wait a minute. He, of course he could show his wait. Honey, get the phone. You know, it was uh, it, it was <laughs> yes. truly it was a breakthrough time, and and we and uh, we all enjoyed that so much. And um, uh, 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 well, it culminated in the love in really, and that's the first recording that the fire sign did was for ads for the first love in, which was Easter Sunday in '67. Yes, and that was it was formed because I, I created the word love in back in the fall in order to sell love in kits for a dollar over the radio. People sent in the dollars. I just had trouble fulfilling. <laughs> I didn't have a fulfillment company for a buck. How could you get one? But I've, up on Radio Free Oz, if not already, but soon, there will be pictures of at least part of the Radio Free Oz love-in kit, the, the button the and the uh, the poem. Bump, the bumper also sticker. A bumper sticker and the Mexican Free Air Force draft card in case of war, please burn. Remember that? And then we did an ad for the Mexican Free Air Force for La Oz, and then that ended up being on Forward into the Past. So there's a real cult connection between early Oz and, and the fire sign and how we carried that forward. Well, but anyway. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, love in. I had a friend named John Carpenter, now, 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 now dead, bless his heart. Uh, and we were on the radio, and all of a sudden he said, let's have a love in. <laughs> I said, Okay. And so we decided we'd have a love-in, and we let everybody know we were going to have a love-in, and we found Elysian Park, and we got a permit for like 4,000 people, and what, 40, 50,000 people showed up, blocked traffic on the five for miles? It was amazing. And, of course, Columbia Records came to us at that point because they smelled money, and they said, we want to make a love-in album. And Austin and I said, no, no, we have this thing called Firesign Theater. We're going to make a Firesign Theater album. Okay, they said. Those were the days of, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you sure. <laughs> if you have you, red beans and reds, you know. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Come in, do Whatever an album. Yeah, yeah, those were the Clive Davis days, and Clive Davis had a nose oh, no, for it was success. Before Clive was Davis. it before Clive? It was before Clive Davis, yes. It was the guy that... Um, um, Started with an L. He did all the classical stuff. Lichtenstein, Lowenstein, I can't remember his name. It's the person that Clive Davis took over for. But remember, in the early days, they wanted to fire us because they thought our second album, uh, the, the, we gave them, I don't know why, we gave them the, the script for How Can You Be? And they thought it was dirty. Remember? Jack Gold said, this is dirty. And we're not going to do this. And then John McClure from the classical division said, "You don't do it. I'll put him on our. I'll put him on the classical." On classical. Oh, okay, we'll do it. And that, of course, was Nick Danger, which was made made us in made the fire sign into a hit. And it was an old time radio show, you know, sure which was. we exploded from the inside. Uh, I, that was the you know the group's early kind of tribute to that to the the, the freedom to explode radio. That had yeah. come about with Radio Free Oz. Yeah, yeah. yeah here's another uh, connection. This yes. was the year. 66 was the year of In Cold Blood. Oh, yeah. Which immediately, which was one of the references that you can find in uh, Waiting for the Electrician, 
when yes. he is in prison, he is visited by the by Truman Capote in cold in, black and white. in cold leather. Yeah, yes. that that <clears throat> so that was that was I just noticed that in this Life magazine. Here's a picture of Truman not dressed in black and white, sort of dressed <laughs> like a Nazi prison camp guard. <laughs> one of his favorite. Yeah, one of his favorite poses. All right. Well, we we've been truly. I think I think reminiscing is very positive, and it really gives us a chance to perhaps understand the uh, a glass darkly with which to view the present. I don't want to stop. I don't want to go off the show without giving some sort of insight into what's going on because it is so frightening and so stupid and so shocking. I mean, you know, it's hard to shock me when it comes to like the the machinations of the United States government. I mean, except for the fact that we torture and kill sometimes. It's this debt ceiling thing. David, I just want to let everybody know all this talk about owing and owing. Who do we owe? Yeah, who do you love? Who do we owe? Well, the debt. Yeah, over uh, we owe nine point seven trillion dollars. That's eight times the amount. That's the debt to ourselves. That's the United States owes itself. We have borrowed as a government from the people almost ten trillion dollars. Eight times as much as we've uh, had China borrow from us. So it isn't China that rules us. The Chinese own eight percent of our debt compared to nearly sixty-eight percent of the debt held domestically, okay? Now, China comes in third. First is the Social Security Fund has the most T-bills, 2.67 trillion. Then there's 1.63 trillion that the Fed owns because one of the ways that they tried to, they called quantitatively ease the market and pump money into it was by vast amounts of T-bills, okay? Then comes China and right behind them, 959 billion is owned by private households. So when this debt thing goes down, who's going to suffer the most? Not China, households, the people, the treasury. It's our problem upon ourselves. So this whole idea of, well, we're going to pay China first, and this is all about you know sa- saving our relationship to these people that owe us is just so much bullshit. Whoa. Well, thank you, Mr. Berger. It, it's it's the, it's it's also the worst possible theatrics, and um, and and and, po- and posering. You know, there's a lot of posering going on. You know, the sure I'm on ice. I've been up all night. My I don't wear my tie like I always do. You know, I'm not tied up <laughs> yeah. like I always am. It's a big boner, you know, and and the president looking oh angry and walking out angry. Oh, I was like, click 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 click. Let's take a picture of the president being angry. Click 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 click. I mean, it's really crazy. I uh, you know I got to say something about killing children. Okay, why not? Uh, <laughs> not the thing to do. And you're the, talking about it, hanging the eight year old. Uh, it's all over the papers everywhere. A hundred dead children uh, on an on 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 an island in in Norway. Uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry, that drone missed, or we missed that drone. You know, uh, it's unbelievable, and it, it's it reminds me. Um, it, 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 it reminds me of the worst of those times of 1966, where where that war was on television, and um, and you suddenly saw how brutal and awful and uh, 
miserable and hopeless the whole thing was. So I'm feeling miserable and hopeless about the about the, the, the world of dead children and why why in America without killing the children we've just decided on the right to disempower them by taking their schools away from them, by limiting their education, by pointing them toward menial jobs, by taking uh, their health away, taking their health care away or not giving them health care or not giving a care whether they have health care one way or another. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, so there's a, there's a, in this whole uh, debt ceiling thing, there's a lot of talk about um, the old people suffering here. Oh well, you're going to take you know Medicare away from 65, maybe 72 or 85, or we'll click it in some appropriate place where we save trillions. Uh, is none of this has anything to do with the children? And excuse me, they are more important than us older folk. The children are going to have to bear not the expense of the this whatever this thing is, this national debt. They're, they're going to have to live with the government that is being created, this in completely dysfunctional American democracy, which is grinding to a halt, don't you think? It is. It is grinding to a halt. It, 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 in fact, you've got the, the Tan Woodman, John Boehner, who is now gone, now gone forward to his caucus. There's 240 Republicans in the House. That's a, a majority. 217 passes the bill, and he's taking his last shot. And he said, we're going to have to do it this way. And he doesn't have the votes. Right. It is ground to a halt. The Democrats can't do anything until the House moves because all money bills come from the House. So it is completely stalemated. It is it's it's a Mexican standoff. Right. And I, I don't mean to in any way impugn the Mexicans. So it is it is really quite it's upsetting. It's devastating. And you know something? One of the things that shows, you know, I'm a big Obama supporter and I've been one of his greatest apologists, right? I just don't know where he's coming from on this one. He looks like a deer in the headlights. To come forward and say, I've been left at the altar twice is so pathetic. Who, after being left at the altar once, would come back to marry the same bozo? I tell you, yeah. this guy, Elizabeth Drew said, okay, yeah. paste some on Mr. President. She said, here's what you do. You say, I want a clean debt ceiling bill. No riders, no nothing. Just raise the debt ceiling by Thursday or I'm taking it to the American people. And you're going to have to pay the price because the Republicans, they're polling completely against the Republicans on this. But does he do that? Does he stand up and say, enough of this, as you say, bad theater? This has got nothing to do with anything but raising the debt ceiling, which we've done time and time again. Raise it or I'm going to take it to the people. I agree with her. Of course, I like Elizabeth Drew. I mean, you know, she's so, you know, maybe well, we'll, we should just leave it. <laughs> we'll see how it plays. It, it, it hasn't long to play out. And uh, this, by the time this, we come back next. Yeah, yeah. we come back next uh, time. It's going to be the day before, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. It's going to be the day before. It's going to be the first. Well, we'll, and, you know, and, we'll 
practice, oh boy. practice a little brinksmanship the next time. Hey, uh, maybe there'll maybe there'll be no web because everything will have crashed, and you know, who knows what's going to happen? But it's going to bring everything down at once, man. We're we're connected at the speed of light. So, well, well, let's go back. Give us give us something nice from the Tang period. Let's let's go floating back to same times. Okay? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to uh, I'm I, I'm gonna catch up with the old man poems. You know, I started uh, writing this book. 20 pages ago in a uh, summer of last yep. year and we've finally come around to summer on Whidbey Island. We have Well, had... this is a David Osmond poem, yes. not not the tag. But but, but, but of, of course, course these influence. poems are are heavily because I spent a year reading Tang poetry on this very program. Right. right. So I'm going to read you the the uh, the last poem of spring, the longest <laughs> longest spring in Whidbey Island history, and then move on to the first poem of summer, which is a whole year around on, on this. Is so, that what we should call them, the last poem of spring and uh, the first poem of sure, summer? Sure, absolutely. Okay, all right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, here we go. Mm-hmm. You're typing. Oh, that's okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. This is spring five. A heap of clouds rumpled up over mountain. Old man makes the bed. Kitten hides, rumpled up. A heap of sheets. A son sleeps on the trampoline in a bag, in a heap, rumpled up in early sunshine. And this is summer one. Summer opens up at last, a peony of a day, a wide-eyed day, a happy-hour day. All the old man's children dance like flowers. Mountain presents itself in winter's white coat, flowers at its feet. And two, summer douses the mountain with sunshine, which it reflects like a pyramid on the full moon. Old man in contemplation sits, rock in the river of time, on his way to the sea. Gee, that's fabulous, David. Absolutely fabulous. Well, it's been wonderful well, growing this book much. on this program. I've been reading poetry on Radio Free Oz for 45 years. Thank you, Peter. You're very, very welcome. And thank you to all the people out there that are listening. And we'd like you to keep us going. We can't say we want to do another 45 years, but we'd certainly like to do another five years. So go on up and continue to contribute to Radio Free Oz. We need your green. It keeps the scene clean, so to speak. And um, Radio Free Oz is brought to you today by the Oz crew. David Maloney, uh, uh, who owns the Gorgeous Blue Studios in which David Osmond, our co-host, sits, is one. And Chaz Glass, our accountant, uh, is two. And then we've got Scotty Wild out there in Bismarck, uh, keeping the website looking cool. And you can get Oscar being its master. And Phil Fountain now in San Francisco doing all of our great graphics. Let's see just how deep the crisis has gone. Okay, just, just let's find out. So long, Pete. Okay, you're you're Dad. you're being lost in digital at 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 at